So as I mentioned, uh, tonight's topic is love. It's one of those words that um, I sort of have, has a, I kind of cringe. It's like the word God or one of those words that so many people have projected their meaning onto that we've lost really what it truly is, any reference to what it is in reality. So uh, we have to rediscover that. And uh, may I say, it's not what you think, literally. So uh, we will do that, but I want to start on a little diatribe of my own. Uh, Having seen the political uh, environment, uh, what it reflects is not the individual, two people's individual conducts. It's the cultural... uh, milieu and what it's requiring for people to become elected. That's all of us. All of us are forming the consciousness of what we want to occur in the election. So there's nowhere to blame. You can't point fingers. But uh, just in looking at it, there's such a sense of groundlessness. There's no ground. Uh, That's what's so disturbing to me is that uh, It's all future-referenced. Everything is about, uh, you know, sort of the conceptual idea of what life will be if if they're elected. And uh, there's no, uh, because there's no ground, there's no consideration. There's no uh, appropriateness. It's been lost in the groundlessness of how each of the candidates are relating to one another and we are relating to the candidates. Uh, I saw the first debate, and I saw part of it, and I, um, I thought, oh, it, Obama was just being considerate. He was just being, uh, he wasn't trying to trash or, or undermine whatever Romney said. He was just simply rela- laying out his message and considering the other person's. And yet the backfire of that, you know, that's inappropriate. That's inappropriate behavior. Uh, but if you go back a few uh, debates, uh, uh, I've seen them since the Nixon-Kennedy debate. That's how they did it. They didn't do it like it's being done now. They did it with consideration and respect. Uh, but we've lost that. And it, the worry factor for me is that we're losing the little ground we had. Because that ground is the root system for love. Unless we have a ground, unless we have a, a place on the earth, nothing can form around us. We can't express anything of any genuine or authentic nature. It's all loosely conceptualized. And when we have lost the very place where we exist, then whatever the momentary uh, wave of emotion is at the time sends us adrift. And right now there's an embattled feeling because that's the emotional expression of the time. And there's no way to come back to sanity because we don't have any pointing to the earth. We don't have any system in which to, in which to ground that anymore. So I just want to say that with an appeal to all of us. This is not about what candidate said what. 
This is about the loss of something much more fundamental that is a part of all of us. But here in this room, let us know our ground. Let us know with certainty where we are. It's amazing how that certainty, that established fact of our presence can thereby undermine all of the trivial ways our mind gets lost in thought and discursive ideas and projected images. It regrounds us. And uh, I mentioned this uh, last week in the discussion. And I said I thought it would, I would try to bring this theme into the next few weeks because I th- do think it's so important. But if you do it, I mean, you can do it as an active practice. You can be engaged in a group or uh, with some, like you're going to the doctors, let's say, and there's some sense of anxiety about what will occur at the doctors or what the doctor will say or whatever the situation is any number of situations that happen to us during the day. And, but the ground is the primary, you see. When the ground is the primary, all the anxiety is secondary. It just, it's like the griddle is the primary. The heat that comes off the griddle is just secondary. As long as we know our place, as long as we have established our, our presence, then that is where we rest. And everything else is not given any credibility because it has no ground. Why give anything that doesn't have ground credibility at all? So try it. Try it. And perhaps that should have been our homework for this week in which we are really encouraging that sense of grounded presence and thereby relieving the tensions of and the wavering of consciousness. And... One of the ways that we invite, one of, the, one of the qualities we invite forward is true connection. True connection. Not connection based upon my ideas, but based upon the ground of our being, which is a very different relationship we have with each other and with ourselves. And unless we have established that sense of connectedness, How can love ever flow? That's the conduit. That's the line. That's the the circuitry in which love can flow, can move. And just to remember that, you know, love isn't an abstraction. It's not some idea. it's It's not like, oh, I want to be loving. It's like it's here. It's here for us, just like the ground is here for us. We have to call it and incline it forward. We have to welcome its participation in our life. And so by that way, it takes over our life. And we have to then get out of the way of its influence. Now, that's the, that's the hesitation that most of us have about love, is that we don't trust it. And I'll get to that in a moment. But in, And I brought this into other lectures, but I want to reinforce it in this one, and that is that the way of the Dharma, uh, the true authentic paths of the Dharma, can really be uh, collectively discussed as two different focuses. One is the focus of wisdom, 
and the focus of wisdom inevitably moves towards emptiness of self and emptiness of self then resolves itself in the infinite expanse of the formless. Okay, you don't have to understand what I just said. I just want to... I just want to draw a line, okay? Now, the other one is the path of love. And some of us say, oh, you know, I don't have any idea what anatta is about, and I can't get a feeling for anatta, or it just doesn't feel settled with me, on and on about it. And I say to you, then, maybe that's not your path. Maybe your path isn't the path of wisdom to emptiness. Maybe your path is the path of love and openness, because emptiness is openness, You've just reinforced a different quality than what your heart naturally is inclined towards. So we say, okay, well, what does it mean to be open, you see? It's one of those words like relaxation that we mentioned in the roar of the Dharma a few weeks ago. It's like, well, how open do I want to be here, you see? Where do I want to limit love is really the question when we say, well, I don't know how open I want to be. If I'm too open, I'm at risk, aren't I? Or we feel at risk. Open, how does openness put you at risk? By letting things in, how does that put you at risk? Say, well, it puts us at risk because we can't, we can't form within openness. We can't decide where our boundaries are going to be. And that's what, again, so the path of love takes us to the sense of boundaries that we assert to keep ourselves from being open. So you're going to run, it's not an easier path. It's just where you might naturally be inclined to go as opposed to the more, the drier and more wisdom-oriented emptiness. It's still going to, you're still going to be confronted with your inability to open beyond whatever objection you have to doing so. You see? And so that will require some investigation, some looking, some... Settlement, and then, then you move again. So, this journey of, this journey of openness, this journey of openness is also the journey of wonder. You see, this is, because when you get open, you're moving beyond definitions. You're move, one of the, you open beyond definitions. That's what it means to open. Where we have closed down is where we have defined something. That thing and our relationship can't grow because we've placed a definition on it. Once we open beyond that definition, we allow it to be something other than what we have characterized it to be. And in so doing, we become something other than we have characterized ourselves in being. So you have to open together with it. You open beyond it, you see. And that's where love comes rushing forth. But we're frightened. And it's, it's okay. I mean, we're frightened wherever direction we go in. <laughs> we, get, uh, we get to the point where we just uh, arrest further progress. And it's a willful decision to stop. It's a decision that we often make, maybe not consciously, but we just bury our heels into it and just say no more no more and this will certainly take you there because when you hear the word love it feels and many it's actually interesting because every once in a while on retreat somebody will open to 
what love is. And they'll come in frightened by what they just saw. It's too big for me, they'll say. I can't hold this. How do I ratchet it down something small enough so that I can fit it into my heart? You see? Well, you can't. And that's why it's such an important subject because it is the expanse. it, it, It cannot be tamed, you might say. And we want things, we want things, uh, very manageable. I love this quote by Joseph Campbell, if I could just read it and then we'll talk a little bit about it. It, He says, all compassion, all caring is irrational. That's the point. Love is irrational. The rational is stressing the I-thou opposites. The mind is in a world of separateness and angular structures. Love puts the world together in a way that can't be calculated. Compassion, love, these jump mathematics. You have to be careful because what he's saying is that this is something beyond which the the mind can control. See, the mind wants it in quantifiable terms. We have to realize that we work endlessly to keep things under control by definition, by opinion, by view, by definition. I said that, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) That's how we manage our relationship to life, through angular exactness. And therefore, we can then be certain as we walk through life what we're facing in terms of our interfaces. And what we're never much we're never never very out of control. We're always pretty much tight tightened down, situated. We like life like that. It gives me a place in it. Even as I come to a spiritual gathering and we hear uprooting the very place and fixed way we perceive life, but that we can keep that as a good future direction. But it doesn't have to interfere with anything now, does it? Well, I want to invite us to feel it now. So I'd like you to just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to just walk you through hopefully a direct relationship with love. Now, it's helpful if you incline your mind in that direction because I can't fight your intention to do the opposite. So it's also helpful if you relax and just allow yourself to feel open. Feel the space around you. Feel the air around you. Let the air be felt on your skin. And also 
the sense of space and airiness inside your body as well. So that it feels, the sense of air feels both internal and external. Notice the air places no force or pressure upon you. Feel it. Sense that it isn't in any way forcing us in, in, in a direction. And that because of that, it wants nothing from us. It is allowing whatever your manifestation to be in this moment, however you're manifesting, however your presentation of being, your display of personhood, to be perfectly all right. We can act sophisticated or we can act the opposite. It in no way judges that whatsoever. It simply surrounds, envelops, and holds us timelessly within it. Now substitute awareness for the air so that it's alive. So it's not the passive material of air, but the alive sense of presence. But it's exactly the same sense of being surrounded, of being enveloped. Something that holds us. Allow the feeling of being unconditionally held to replace the sensation of air. Unconditionally embraced. And relax to that. Relax within that. And that is a rough approximation of the unconditional love that surrounds us at all times. So now, coming back. But don't disturb it. Just open your eyes and attend. But don't disturb what you just created. Do we trust love? Do we trust that sense of being embraced? You see. At what point are we going to shift the focus of our faith I'm just bringing in words that we have already talked about in some detail. Faith, wisdom, surrender. Shift the focus of our faith from our control to complete openness. You see, the problem is that it's not certain, it's not predictable the way the mind wants to shape life is in pre- predictable and discrete objects. So it really doesn't care that much about love. It wants to make love its own empowerment. So it says, I'll start cultivating that. I'll start building that as a project of my own and I'll have a quantity of it that I can carry around. 
Listen carefully to those words because no matter what direction you go in, the path of wisdom or the path of the heart, that is misunderstood dharma. We don't cultivate things and then take it with us for the right moment in which we could un let the cultivation display itself and I don't know what happens. It's like, what? What's supposed to happen? Fireworks? Doesn't go like that. Doesn't occur like that. What does it take to be ready to surrender? What does it take to be ready to just to drop our protest? What does it take for us to simply allow love in? It takes trust. It takes faith that we're not going to get hurt on the other side of that. And that's one of the reasons, and there are several reasons that I'd just like to talk about briefly, is why we keep love externalized and ratcheted down into controlled objects. Like, I love you. That's a very controlled statement of love. Because now my love is just in this particular person. And I can possess that person, or try to, through jealousy, through envy. And then those of us who are poets or artists, well, we feel the sense of love, but then we try to make love tangible. We, aren't, we try to create an object that, from the love that we feel, and then we can proclaim our love through the object that we have created, the painting that we have painted, the sculpture that we have sculpted. You see, I just, I just want to show you that this thing doesn't move. When it's mind-driven, it stays mind-driven. There's no leap here. It makes a better life to incline your life towards love. It just isn't a spiritual life. The sacred, what is the sacred in this? Form, the mind, can never think its way out of form because the very way it produces thought is to create things of form from thought. So thought, thinking, just creates the forms in which it continues to project its world. So there's no way that the mind can somehow navigate its way out of this thing. You see... I want to make it so clear that this is not going to be an intellectual pursuit. That there's a shutdown here. This just doesn't work. I can't figure this out because it can't be figured out. So what blocks the heart? Well, one of the many reasons we block the heart is because in its different expressions, love looks like compassion or it looks like joy for another's success or it looks like just warm-heartedness. It has lots of different ways. When it meets circumstances in life, it expresses itself in a different quality. 
We call that compassion, we call it mudita, we call it love, we call it metta, we call it lots of different things. But it's just the circumstance, that's the emanation of love within those circumstances. So if it meets pain, compassion arises. And why is it that we can't meet pain with a compassionate response? Because compassionate response is the innate response to something that when, when, when pain is seen, the innate response is compassion. And there is a lot of pain in the world, but there's very little compassion. So what's going on there that keeps those two from responding to each other? Well, it's fear. When you uh, feel or when you open to pain, you're vulnerable. You, we feel vulnerable. We feel as if we have no protection. That's what love does, is that it doesn't have protection. If you have protection, you stay you. You stay the defended you you are. Right? What love requires to be open is to move beyond protection, beyond the principles of defense. And that's the definition of vulnerability. And so we don't want that. We don't want to be fully compassionate. We want to be situationally compassionate. We'll decide when we're going to feel vulnerable and when we're not, and we're going to decide how much compassion this person gets and how much that one does. And it's a whole mental process through which we determine the quantity we will serve. It doesn't work like that. It's not spoon-fed. It's not like one tablespoon of medicine for this person, teaspoon for that one. Or we have fear of pain because we have had situations in which we felt we fell romantically involved and we were hurt or scarred and that has encrusted us in a certain way and there are many of us out here in this audience that this description is true for. And you don't run a risk that pain anymore. And no, you, you're, but you're very clever because you don't honor that fact. You make it all kind of fuzzy as if you're doing what's best for you. But basically it comes down to fear of pain, which is again fear of vulnerability, which is again fear of loss of control. All of us have had relationships that have gone sour. I remember when I was in college, I separated from my long-time girlfriend at that point. And I said, you know, enough of love. I'm not going to have it anymore. And at that point, Simon and Garfunkel were playing the song, I Am a Rock. That's it. That's where I'm going, rockiness. 
And then I just, I said, okay, I'm going to be a rock. No, I'm not going to be bothered by anything. And, uh, you know, and I really maintained that for a while. But it was so, I mean, you can't do it and keep a straight face because it's so, it's so remote. It's so dry. It's so distant. It's so detached. That if there's any humanity in any of us, we feel the longing to reconnect. And another reason that we disdain love is that we stay self-focused. When anything holds our attention... And if you want to know how much you hold your own attention, in meditation, does your mind ever stray from your emotions or your... Everything is like coming through the lens of you. Oh, my emotions. I've got to figure this. Oh, let me just be present to the emotion. Oh, God. Okay, great. And now, oh, my pain of my knee. It's always, isn't it? There's not much looseness there, is there? Not much openness. Well, if in meditation, that's our focus, you can be assured that in life it's the same focus. That we just keep reinforcing that self-centered perspective. And if you've ever tried to talk to somebody who has a lot of individual pain, because it, it, they're very self-focused. They don't have time to listen. They don't have time to connect because they're very internal about their own processes. But perhaps in lesser degrees, that's the state of all of us. And that's why there's no connection. We never, to meet, to love, to open, to respond, to feel, to invite to have a relationship requires, by definition, an alteration in this self-centeredness. But because everything just keeps coming in as if we were sort of... But we, why? Why do we need to spend that much time? At some point, you know, every emotion I was having in meditation seemed so important for me to catch and relax to and open up. And I thought, why is that any more important than hearing a sound or feeling the air on my body or just the sense of complete participation in life, a very open, willing participation of consciousness outside of my own concentric circles of me. I was once an attendant uh, to a nine-year-old girl who was dying of cystic fibrosis. So uh, my, I was there uh, as a part of the hospice program and her parents were there who had just recently gotten divorced or separated uh, even during the child's illness. And the mother had caused the separation. The father was in a lot of pain because of that separation. And the little nine-year-old girl who was 
very close to death and on the hospice unit, sort of uh, assessed the situation while we were all in the room and threw, threw us out of the room, said for us all to leave. So I thought, oh, she's going to die and she wants to die alone. That was the way I was translating what she had done. But that's not what happened at all. She called us all back into the room after about 15 or 20 minutes. And somehow she had gotten up out of bed, gone to her desk in this hospital room and drawn a big I love you poster for her father and called us back in the room and gave that I love you poster to her father. And if I remember correctly, died within a week or so of that gift. But here was somebody whose focus was not on herself at age nine, who was dying and could respond to the pain in the room. That was a tremendous lesson for me. Because how many of us have that degree of space in ourselves? We miss so much tragedy, so much pain on the streets where we walk because we don't have time to meet it. Not only do we not have time, which is all self-driven and busy, which is the ungrounded way that we are learning to live, but we barely notice it because we're so internalized around what our narrative is saying in that moment and our projections and our reactions to the pain of our own situation and our own internal responses. When do you think that's going to iron itself out, your internal responses, by the way? I've been waiting for 40 years in meditation, 65 in life. It doesn't seem to iron itself out. This sense of love requires a very open, a very porous relationship to life. But grounded within the experience, within the exactitude of the moment. So it's not without roots. It's not a hairy-fairy, Pollyannish, you know way that some people greet spiritual new age spiritualism it's a grounded confidence of being that is open as things pass through the moment but what happens to us because we are so internalized and so self-focused is that the love doesn't go away, it just gets reconfigured. It gets uh, shunted into a different packaging. So instead of looking like love, it looks like desire. What is desire? See, as love comes through the mind, 
and the mind processes it, it becomes a desire for. It becomes objectified. Oh, I love that. I love this. I love you. And then we desire for those things we love. And so when we desire, that's the, an expression of true love. It's just been reconfigured in the only way that the mind can do it, which is a I-thou relationship, or what was it that Joseph Campbell said, the I-thou opposites. And you can be suspicious of that. And instead of following the desired course, which is trying to acquire or assimilate an object or an experience in order to be satisfied in love, you can see through that. You can say, this isn't work. This is, this is crazy making. It's not about the object. It's never about the object. It's about the love. Or it comes through fear. Stay with me. Because there is love permeating fear. So how does love permeate fear? Fear is the expression of contraction, self-protection. It's love trying to corridor you off so that whatever it anticipates occurring, you will be safe from. It's still the actions from love. But it's been misrepresented. It's interesting to try to find the kernel of love in every expression of mind. It's got to be there because it saturates the universe. It's like if we were all underwater and you were trying to find some piece of dry ground. It's all underwater. Let me give you one more. Anger. How can love have anything to do with anger? If you think of it, when something you care about is blocked or obstructed, that's where anger arises. So the anger is the fact that love, you have been separated from something you care about or something you, have, you love. What a difference it would make to us if we reconfigured anger back as, into a statement of love. So that it's not that I hate this situation, it's okay, let me first acknowledge the grief I have for being separated from what I really care about. And in fact, we find that anger is a stage of grief. And grief is simply the separation of something we care about. Now, here's where I want to invite us in. I'm not really interested, as I close in on my 66th year, of just giving discourses. In fact, I don't care anything about it. I've done that now. I care about people who want to align themselves 
in body, mind, and energetically to carry their life forward in the direction that we are using here. Not just to come and feel good for a night, but to actually move and ingrain and embody these issues forward. That's what the homework is. But it's also what I want to talk about for just a moment, our actions from love. Again, I'm going to call us back to the ground, to the root system, to the body. The orientation is all important. No contact, no relationship, no contact can be established unless you're established. This is not, as I said in the beginning, an intellectual affair. It's not a conceptual affair. It's not an affair of ideas. Oh, I would love to do that. It's a matter of actually grounding ourselves and doing it. And so I want to give you encouragement to do just that. First, you say, okay, let me just incline my mind towards receiving and connecting. You don't have to worry about love. If you connect, the deeper you connect, the deeper you will love. It will just flow out of you. It's not in some and not in others. We don't have to worry about it. Don't you feel some people being so porous that they just carry a lightness and a warmth with them? That's because they don't have a lot of self investment going on, at least in the moment that you're meeting them there. I knew two nurses, one who was extraordinary nurse at giving the pill on time and doing everything very mental. But she had very little connection with the patient she served. And then I knew another nurse who was just the opposite. She was always being scolded for not documenting everything she was doing. Her rounds were less than precise, and I don't know, but the patients loved her. And the one who was less mental, we were friends, I was friends with both of them, said to me, God, I wish I was more like this other nurse. She's got it so together. And I said, you know, if I'm in the hospital, I don't want her by my side. I want you. Because I can always feel that you care. This is kind of story night, so I'm going to tell another story. (laughs) I worked with a social worker in hospice care. And she was a very... She was a... She she had been in hospice a lot longer, and she knew all the different techniques and methods of working with patients. And there was one patient she had uh, that she had on the service for a long period of time, like three or four months. And she would go out there a couple of times a week probably, and they would work on guided imagery and relaxation techniques and all these different And I was just amazed at how many different techniques she was working with this guy. So she, through the course of three or four months, 
together. They had been working in this way. And at the end, when he was obviously close to dying, she wanted to know what had worked and what hadn't. So she said, you know, of all the things that we've done together, which ones have you appreciated the most? He says, I have appreciated your caring the most. I don't even remember what you did. I just want us to end on that note. That the power of this may not be felt by us. And we're so used to only running upon direct feedback. You did a good job. Oh, good, and then I'll keep doing that. But love isn't like that. You don't necessarily get that feedback. You don't necessarily know what effect you just had on someone. When the context of the situation may be in passing, one of the most profound contacts I ever had, I got on a, a, a bus, or is it a train? I can't remember. I got on some, uh, it was some tour of something, and the person that was taking the tickets, how they received my ticket and how they looked at me as I got on whatever transportation it was, I sat down and for the rest of that ride and for much of the time afterwards was affected just because the way this person met me. I, didn't, I never saw them again and I never had a conversation. Not one single word passed between us. Now, how open do we want to be? You see, how guarded? You're going to die with that. If you maintain your guardedness, assuredly, you will die as you live. And what is it now? How can we move this thing on a little further, encourage greater participation, greater inclusivity? I leave that question up to you each of us. Can we sit for a minute or two? As we sit, I want to read something that the Buddha said about this subject. I love this quote. He says, It is in this way we will train ourselves by liberation of self through love. We will develop love. We will practice love. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. It is in this way we will train ourselves, by liberation of self through love. So we have a few moments for, a few minutes for uh, 
questions or comments from anyone, if you'd like. Um, if you're opening yourself up to love and that is uh, vulnerability, either not being able to fix problems, pain that you see, or, or the pain that comes from uh, disappointment in love, um, are you are you really are you saying that vulnerability is going to result in more pain, or is there something else that happens instead of getting hurt? So, is there something else that happens when we're vulnerable besides getting hurt? Because why would we want to open if our experiences have always been that I get hurt? Okay, so this this sense of being open is not a force of will. It's a, I'm decided to be open. It's really an evolution of our understanding and how it is that we look upon ourselves and who we take ourselves to be within that understanding. As we loosen the central issue, which is that I am a person that can be hurt, and we see that what is really occurring are our projections of and our stored pain of early childhood assumptions, usually about ourselves, the whole thing gets... It's like this knot of thread that just, or cotton, let's say, that you start pulling it apart and you start seeing through it. Then it doesn't really matter how they handle my vulnerability because if they try to manipulate it, two things happen. One is that I can hold the pain of their manipulation if it gets through. The second thing that happens is that when I'm not self-focused, and don't forget this because this is essential, because we don't trust this. Discernment. We have greater discernment. Yes, we have less self-control, but discernment takes over. It sees what's going on. And it's not going to allow an abusive relationship to persist. So it'll step out of the way of that, or just end it, or whatever it is necessary to do. That, tied with the fact that if things do slip in, and I get hurt in our I, uh, the person leaves me. It doesn't lead to a, a cacophony, for lack of a better word, of, of mental disaster. Like, oh, I'll, I'll be alone the rest of my life and how awful it is that they left me and I had invested so much. All of that is just, this is, it gets cleared out. All of that just gets cleared out pretty quickly because it's all based on nothing. It's just all based upon one's individual worry and anxiety. And yes, you feel for a day or two or perhaps for a little while longer uh, that you wish the relationship had continued, but it's not going to incapacitate any of it. You see, you get healthier, able to stand within the pain that's the universe is... At first, the pain comes at you and hooks our own pain. And so we protect ourselves, not from the pain that comes at us, but from our response of our own pain to that pain. That's what we're protecting ourselves from. But as we explore that pain internally, and we come to some degree of sanity with it through a lot of different doors, one of them is selflessness. There's no more complete way for self-pain to eradicate than to see yourself as empty. 
But you see, it's also groundedness. Let me, I want to go back to groundedness. If you, if you have a, a strong sense of where you are in life, and we have the ability to handle life on those exact terms as it's coming at us, we're working with them, and there's an ethical and integri- integrity to the place we are in on life, so we're not telling a lot of distorted truths and, you know, or a lot of crisis or drama aren't being manufactured that are irrelevant. Then there's a sense of sanity, a bearing sanity. And when somebody says something to you that is offensive, it's not owned. Because in the moment, it's being seen as, oh, your projection of me. That's what your mind is doing with me. That's all it is. It's only when I believe what the person is saying and then we hook into that particular self-pain that I come out and explode in reaction. There's no substitute for looking at our pain, exploring it, fleshing it out, looking, sensing it, getting a handle on it from a sense of stability and grounding. Good. And when I'm seeing more loving myself, yes. the noise outside of the body Right. And I think that's what yes, yes. So she was saying that uh, she's taken on in her own practice to cultivate uh, harmonious speech, but she also realized that that involved what she was saying to herself, her thoughts, right? So how harmonious are those? I mean, we love to be harmonious externally and keep our own opinions right, very sharp and internally, but those two are exactly the same pitch. All right, so that's one equation to solve. But there's also body, speech, and mind. So we don't want to just stay harmonious in speech and thought, but you also in action. And that's where groundedness comes. And also, you want to, in, in virtually every disposition, in every way that we act, that we engage, that harmony has to follow suit body, speech, and thought. Okay? So bring the body into it. I, I don't really recommend, except in the way you're doing it, actually, taking on one of the eightfold path, one of like wise speech, I'm going to practice wise speech and let the other ones go because the other, it doesn't, it's all, it's not congruent. It's got to be congruent for you to grow from. So you have to bring them all in, right? Now, what you did, you started with speech and you think, okay, well, it's not just external speech. What about my thoughts? So now you've incorporated thoughts. Now, the next step is for you to incorporate action of body so that the whole thing is lined up in that way. And you're moving now, and you're also inclining. Don't forget the inclination or the intention to move with harmony in your words or in love, my words. Okay, so let's just, let's, okay, so that's my intention. And then see how you keep obscuring that intention. 
That's okay. It's not, you're not going to get it right all the time. In fact, the, the path, the journey of spiritual awakening is full of bodies lying down, corpses, where we have made mistakes and we, you know, it's like climbing up Mount Everest and seeing everybody that's died on the way up. You know, they leave the bodies there as on the ascension or dissension for that matter. Well, we leave our bodies too. And so you just keep stepping over the bodies and just keep participating fully. It doesn't matter. It's cleared off. When you find your ground, you have cleared your past. The past is clear. Because your ground doesn't hold the truth of the past in the same way that an unrooted person holds the truth of the past. An unrooted person holds the truth of the past as the truth. We hold it as a relative truth, something that memory bases itself upon. Yes. No, it's like bird wings. It's a roomy poem about bird wings. The bird, like that. It's both the contraction and the expansion. The contraction and the expansion. You learn from the contraction. Those two are harmonious as bird wings. You sense it? The contraction teaches you as much as the openness. You try to open and you, you get caught somewhere. And you close back down. And, but the, the learning doesn't stop. You're learning all this time. You're seeing what occurred. And then making slight adjustments. And then opening up even farther the next time. You see? So never uh, begrudge contraction. Everything is the path. You see, if you think, is there love for this too? So, is there love for contraction too? That is, is there something contraction? Is there a way to connect to contraction so that contraction is fulfilled? So, its journey is fulfilled in the information that's needed to pass through that relationship. You see, so is there love for this too? Love for this too doesn't just mean being able to hold it in some kind of stiff consciousness. It means having a relationship with it. Right? Letting it be porous. Letting it feed you what the necessary information. And then the openness. And then the openness meets a contraction. And you go, wow, that's interesting. So there's a love for this and where there's a glitch and where there's a, you see? So, so that you bring it in to virtually every aspect of practice. The information is the what's important. That there's still things coming in. Oh, I see. Oh, no wonder. You know, and then, oh, why did I react so much to that particular risk? Well, I still believe what he said about me to be true. Let me look at that. Why do I believe that I'm a terrible person? He said I was, but why did it take me to such a 
depth and low, to such low depth. It's because I believe it in myself. Okay, so this is where love starts flushing out the sense of self, you see? Say, okay, so what... We're afraid to go there. We're afraid. See, we don't. We haven't been. We are, most of us aren't porous enough to ask those questions. We believe we're somebody, and what we're going to find when we cut, open door three is you're as bad as you thought you were. <laughs> oh my God! Now I have no other door to open. You see, that's what we really believe. Well, I'm telling you, that's not what you're going to find. You're just going to have to take it on my word. Until you experience it for your, for your own. It's not what you find. The whole thing is moving and changing and flux, beautiful translucence. All it needs is our conscious awareness and attention, and it just like that. The genie jumps out of the bottle. And now we have to jump out of the night. (laughs) Thank you all for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.